Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking with Kenneth Bowles on his book, Future Ethics, Collective Action in Tech Industry, Why the Tech Industry Deserves Regulation, The Tech Industry Climate Change, and Design Crits and Design Sprints. If you'd like to find out more about the Machine Ethics Podcast, go to machine-ethics.net or if you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. You can also check out my other work at ethicalby.design and also rate us, share and find us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you happen to be a first time listener, then I recommend going back to episode 18 to, to get up to speed with some of the ideas and technology involved with machine learning and AI. Thank you and hope you enjoy. Hi, Kenneth. Hi. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. So my name is Kenneth Bowles. I'm uh, a designer and I call myself a tech ethics consultant these days. I don't think I've quite earned the right to call myself an ethicist. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. So my background is um, uh, digital product design. I was a designer at a bunch of tech firms. I spent uh, three years at Twitter heading up the UK design team there. And I've worked in governments, startups, dot-coms, e-commerce, etc. Um, over the course of the last couple of decades. Uh, so I'm you know, very much a technologist and designer by trade. Uh, coming into the last couple of years, really, with a, a real focus on the ethics of Silicon Valley and the ethics of emerging technology, because as you and your listeners will be all too well aware, there's plenty of work to be done on that. So I wanted to see where I could contribute. Right, and you've, you've just released your, your book on the subject, actually, haven't you? I have, yeah. I've just released a book called Future Ethics, yep. uh, which has been a fairly long couple of years in the making. Uh, so that's been out uh, a few months, and so far the, re, uh, the reaction, the response has been very positive. So that's, um, mm. that's really nice to see. Awesome. And I guess there's the... I feel like what I'll do is I'll come back to that, if that's okay, mm-hmm. because the first question we always ask is... What is AI? Oh, yes, right. Yes, you do ask that, don't you? Um, so, so I think AI is a term that gets less useful the closer you get to industry because the folks working on what we might consider AI would recognize that actually it's just too broad a term, that really what they're talking about is machine learning. And to be honest, mostly within that, what they're talking about is deep learning, mm-hmm. which as we know is essentially a rebrand of the neural networks from you know, the 80s or 70s or whenever, whenever they first came about, but with a lot more computation, a lot more data, and a lot more layers. Um, so for folks in the industry, they'll like the specificity. They'll, they will say, well, AI, you, know, you need to be more precise there. Mm-hmm. But I still think AI is a useful term for you know, stepping away from industry, for talking to the public about any, um, any kind of increased capabilities that technology can offer beyond those of, of humans. And it's a useful term because it carries with it some expectations, some assumptions, some preconceptions, some hopes and some fears that can actually be quite useful in mm. the public discourse. They can also harm as well. But um, I, unlike some, I don't want to just discard that term because at least that's a common term we have with the public mm. at the moment. And uh, I'm sure we'll get onto this, but I'm very keen to engage the public in the kind of conversations we need to have in the, in the field. Yeah. And... Um, your book is obviously not uh, directly all about AI, but it's mm. it's more general uh, technology ethics and, and um, the kind of 
lot of different issues that we have in technology and building stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, my focus is um, predominantly uh, emerging technology. Mm. So there are plenty of interesting ethical conversations to be had about, say, the ethics of Facebook's newsfeed. Mm. But it's also a bit of a fait accompli, right? The thing is out there, it's already having these uh, social and political and ethical implications. Um, and so there's not a whole lot designers can do to, to change that now, I mean, other than, you know, joining Facebook. Um, I'm more interested in looking at the challenges of the decades to come with mm. design and with technology, because we have a chance to try and address some of those deep issues now. The trust that we're mm. going to require as technologists, as designers, is only going to increase. We're going to ask people to connect more and more of their lives to the products and the services that we build. And at the moment, I don't think we've earned that trust. As an industry, mm. I think the last few years have shown some of the missteps that, uh, that we've taken. And so now is the time to be having those conversations. AI is, of course, part of it. Mm. AI is a very large part of it. But uh, I think sometimes there's too much of a focus on uh, the ethics of, you know, super intelligence and things like that. And this uh, very, very real and very interesting questions, but perhaps questions that are maybe a couple of decades out that can foreclose upon some more pressing issues like algorithmic bias or uh, persuasive technologies and their roles in mm. um, society and politics and you know, human free will, etc. So I wanted to explore all of those. So the book essentially is structured almost from near to far. So we start with some of the contemporary issues, right. then look at what might be happening in a few years, then we reach some of the deeper sort of social change and economic changes that may come with the AI discourse that uh, you know we're all very familiar with. Yeah, so, and does it bridge into that far off kind of more f yeah. philosophy stuff? Maybe, you know, um, singularity, as the people like to call it. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, uh, you know, we certainly uh, discuss those sorts of things in the book. Mm. I am also keen to recognise that um, we should build upon the work of others. Uh, the tech industry has this infuriating habit of believing it's the first upon any new shore, right? Um, but of course, people have been thinking about this question, you know, futurists and science fiction authors and writers and philosophers and artists have been thinking about uh, these issues for a, a, a long time. So I won't claim to be throwing in uh, entirely new concepts into that domain. Um, my, my job there is to reference some of the discussions that are happening and right. contextualize those for real working uh, technologists today mm. so that it becomes a little bit more real than um, you know these mythical far future ideas to kind of, kind of ground them and prepare us if you like mm -hmm. but yeah I think that all falls within the remit of the same question it's all where does technology go go next mm -hmm. uh, over the next one two three four decades you know in my lifetime I suppose mm -hmm. Um, and how do we try to rise to those challenges? Do you, do you in that way, also call yourself a futurist? Because that seems to me there's lots of people who um, do the conference uh, circuit and, and mm. make predictions and, and talk about some of this stuff. Uh, I don't currently. I may be a future futurist. Again, I think mm. I have more work to do um, to sort of establish myself in that field or more, mm. probably more accurately to feel comfortable calling myself that. I think it's very easy. It's a very easy title to just grab and, and yeah. throw upon oneself, but I, I, I like to have the credentials. So um, I'm certainly getting more interested in the application of some of the techniques we're seeing in future studies, in futurism, um, as techniques for technologists to sort of understand the potential implications of the technologies that they build. And so I'm, I'm interested in trying to tie those, those threads together. Mm. 
Um, but at the moment, uh, we'll see. One, one thing yeah. at a time, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how did you go from Twitter and, and these different uh, design practices um, and, and agencies and, and clients and things like that? And, and was there something that triggered your interest in the kind of ethics of technology or the ethics of what you were doing at the time? Uh, or was it kind of a gradual thing? Um, I sometimes get people... Um, Asked me that question, I think, assuming that there was some Damascene conversion, that there was a moment where I was just filled with revulsion for the inside of Silicon Valley and I mm. felt I had to get outside it and critique it. And it's not really the case. I think I always had a an interest in ethics, even, you know, as a, as a youth, um, but no training in it. It was just, you know, it would, it would be what I call sort of intuitive ethics or moral intuition at that point. You know, you have a mm. hunch for what you feel is wrong or right in the world personally. Um, and I've been lucky enough to give conference talks and so on for quite a while. And I remember being introduced at one event, uh, going back perhaps about a decade now. And the woman who's introducing me said, one of the things I like about Kenneth's talks is he always has this ethical angle on things. Mm. And I was like, oh, I do. I hadn't really realized that that was something that I was projecting. Um, so that seed really just started growing within me. And, um, I actually, one of the reasons I joined Twitter was because I thought it was among the more ethical companies in the way that it handled particularly user data and privacy and things like that. And those sort of concerns were mm. important uh, to the team. Um, and so it guided me. But um, after I left Twitter, I decided that was the right time to try and learn more about this topic and to mm. contribute because it felt like there were so many gaps in technologists' daily practice that needed to be addressed. And I think over the last two or three years, we've seen glaringly that that's been the case. Yep. So I don't know whether I was just lucky or whether I was prescient in anticipating that gap. But uh, spending the time double, you know, diving into this topic in a lot more detail uh, turns out to have been quite a, a useful thing to do, I think. Definitely not lucky. Well, perhaps a bit of both. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there, there's luck and privilege in that I you know, was, was afforded that opportunity mm -hmm. that I could just step back and say, what do I want to do next with my career? Where yep. are the areas I can contribute the best? And I recognize not everyone has that luxury. Yep. I mean, you didn't go to the Bahamas. You wrote a book, right? So <laughs> that's, that's a... <coughs> I did a bit of the, I did okay, a bit of the Bahamas, fine. a bit, yep. little bit of the travel as well. You yep. know, I enjoy travel. Um, but which is something actually that nags me ethically. Right. Um, yeah. So a, a little bit of both. But the, the book was always, you know, in, in my mind, I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to get a better opportunity than this. So mm -hmm. let's, let's commit. Yep. Um, so who's the book for? Uh, so the book's primarily for working technologists and by that specifically I'm probably talking most to designers and specifically product managers within tech firms um, because I actually think that product managers hold most of the ethical power within these companies. Mm. My hunch is, uh, or certainly I've written it with the intention that it's likely to be most relevant to senior practitioners because they're often the ones who are grappling with these issues. Mm. Um, I think it was Richard Sennett who says that ethics appears at the level of mastery. And once you've got to a certain point where you've built up the capabilities, then you start to recognize the deeper underlying issues that you perhaps hadn't mm. uh, given proper attention to. But that said, there are some really exciting things happening I'm seeing with, uh, I suppose I'd call them junior or you know graduates, mm. um, coming into industry and recognizing that ethics is going to be a really important part of their career trajectory. Mm -hmm. So they're also grappling with these, these issues as well. So perhaps it's useful to those folks as well. But yeah. um, perhaps it is that whole thing of you write a book 
from whose absence you've suffered. It's the book that I could have used maybe five years ago. As someone who's made mistakes, uh, who's designed things, and now you look back and go, I really could have done a better job, or perhaps that shouldn't have even been built at all. So perhaps there are other folk uh, in my position who've reached a certain level of um, comfort and respect within the industry, and to an extent kind of want to tear that down a little bit and start uh, transferring that social capital into trying to make a positive impact and trying to change things for the better yep. in the industry. So I think almost, you know, if there were um, uh, junior designers, junior devs who are picking this book up anyway, and they're going to take, um, you know, a lot out of it, obviously, in hopefully how they make decisions and then hopefully maybe um, take to task the people who are above them a little bit as well. I mean, I think so, and I hope yeah. so. And, you know, there's a strong case that that's what the industry needs. Yep. I mean, let's. Well, maybe we'll go straight into all the stuff we're seeing around collectivization and collective action within tech. Mm. And obviously, the Google walkout was a you know, phenomenally large um, ethical and political story within technology toward the tail end of last year. And that kind of thing is likely to increase. Silicon mm. Valley workers are increasingly realizing the power that they hold. But that power is collective power. If you stick your head above the parapet as an individual mm. in these companies. Um, you need to have a bit of clout in order to get away with it. So yep. then a junior who's read, say, my book or you know something similar uh, will have to recognize that standing up for what's right is not always that easy. It mm. comes at a personal cost sometimes. And so it's far more effective if you can find allies to yep. do that. <clears throat> so the idea of trying to hold people to account above them is, is important mm. and um, long overdue, frankly, within the field. But it needs to be done carefully. It needs to be done on the grounds of you know proper ethical reasoning so that one can make a proper case yeah uh, and so that's what i'm trying to equip people with with the book is to say mm -hmm. here are some ways to think about these problems and here are ways to justify decisions or to evaluate ethical challenges mm -hmm. um and then potentially here are ways to stand up for what you think is the correct answer and that's individual action it's collective action yeah um, and that's something hopefully anyone in an organization can start to affect yeah um, so I have a quote here, uh, which is I find quite amusing. Um, I haven't, as I said before, I haven't finished reading the book, so this mm -hmm. is a, quite an early quote. Sure. And it's quite amusing to me because it's something that is dear to my heart. All those pointless thought experiments and dusty, ge uh, dusty Greeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, do you think that a lot of these conversations you're having in the book and, and with people generally are are things like you say that are are morally coming from from your experience and from your from the environment and uh, culture, uh, or do you subscribe to some of the dusty Greeks and you know um, utilitarians and all these sort of phrases and, and ways mm. of um, constructing ethical frameworks and stuff like that? Do you sure. go into that in in, in your work? I do. Um, yes, I mean that phrase about you know these thought experiments and dusty Greeks. Yeah. Uh, I should stress is a um, it's like a pithy comment. Yeah, something, yeah. Yeah, something yeah. like that. It's, it's <clears throat> essentially saying, well, this is what people believe ethics is. Yeah. And of course, ethics isn't about that. Ethics is a vital and real topic. It's about mm. how do we choose to live our lives. For me, it's a pledge to take our lives seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is vital and, and every day and you know, living and breathing. And coming back to my prior comment about you know, the, the tech industries annoying habit of trying to solve everything from first principles. I think that mm. would be a mistake here. We should 
recognise that ethicists, philosophers of technology, um, futurists, etc., have been looking at these issues. You know, philosophers have been looking at them for millennia. Mm. How do we live the good life? I mean, this goes back through Aristotle and Plato and so on. And we would be fools not to listen to some of those uh, ideas. Mm. Now, my job in the book is to try and translate those and contextualize them, as I say, to ground them in the real, in you know, the technical challenges that we face every day, to convince people that you know, maybe you don't have to read Kant, but you should at least understand his ideas because yep. they are relevant to uh, the sorts of challenges that we, we face. So mm. the book isn't a theoretical book. It's not a... You know, I don't have a philosophy uh, background. I, you know, I have a physics degree, um, and then I'm a designer. So you know, two extremes that are quite, quite uh, dissociated in some ways. But to try and um, recognise some of the fine work that's come before, because when mm. I committed to writing the book and, and really started to research it, I was blown away by the depth of the insight and the, the vitality of the discourse and the debate that was happening. Mm. And I wanted to be part of it and I wanted to help translate it for people and open people's eyes to this you know, living, breathing philosophy uh, mm. and ethical um, discussion that's happening. So yeah, I mean, we shouldn't close our minds off to what's gone before um, because you know, they're decades ahead of us, mm. some of these folks. So let's learn from them. I think yeah. if I can help uh, bridge the gap between what's happening in particularly philosophy of technology and um, tech practice, then that's my job done as an author. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways you're going to be doing that as well as the book is going in, doing consulting, doing um, ethical design sprints and things like that. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, obviously off the, the back of the book, I'm now thinking, well, what can I do to... Um, you know, to further this cause and, of course, to try and, you know, make a living for myself as well. Um, and, you know, I've been working with uh, a few companies since since the book and it's something I'm, I'm picking up further this year to say, OK, well, how do we try to translate this into positive change within organisations? Because right now I think there's no questioning the appetite. You know, I, I mm. after the book, I, I travelled uh, pretty much the entire west coast of the US talking with, you know, Facebook, Dropbox, Hulu, you know, big tech companies, mm. uh, Microsoft and so on, um, on that side of that side of the world. And there's a real appetite to try and make some change here. That, you know, mm. I think tech employees, particularly designers, get this and really want to try and change things. But we don't really know where to start. I have some ideas, of course, on where to start. So if I can work with those, those folks to try and yeah. uh, bring some of the ideas from what's happening in academia, what's happening in um, you know, science fiction and so on, and, and actually mm. ground those in everyday design and product development practice, then I think that's where the change comes from. I think what we need to get to is a point where ethics becomes uh, an ethos, which is Cameron Tonkinwise's way of looking at the problem, uh, which I really like. What I don't want to do is just have an ethics checklist at the end, right? You've done your usual design process. Yep. Is it ethical? Ticks and boxes, great, ship it. That, that, that clearly won't work. So there needs to be some deeper change in how we mm -hmm. uh, develop products. And so, yeah, working with companies to help figure that out and to try and get something that becomes a repeatable um, process becomes a, a, a change in mindset, if you like, mm. of the people at that company. So it's early days for that. I mean, the book's only been out a few months, but yep. um, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, you know committing uh, more time and you know energy working with clients on that in the future. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, you and I both went to Juvet. Mm, yes, on different years. That's right. I was the year before you. Yes. Yes. Um, to the beautiful uh, Norwegian countryside. Mm -hmm. um, what did you take away from that experience? Ooh. Um, one of the main 
ideas that became concrete for me during that session was the idea of art as a provocation. Um, it's all very well having uh, slightly isolated conversations, um, potentially slightly elitist conversations about what do we think the future of technology should be. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to engage a wider group, you know, public, uh, uh, you know, members of the public, legislators, officials, mm -hmm. educators, etc. in that discussion as well. But these folks, you know, they've got other priorities in life. They're not always literate in exactly what's happening inside AI or machine learning systems today, mm -hmm. or they're not ethicists or something like that. So we need to find a way to bridge these conversations in ways that folks can congregate around and say, okay, well, here's what I think. And it was in conversation with um, Dan Hon and uh, Kate Devlin, who's just written her new book, Robot Sex. Yep. Um, and then Matt Webb as well. And so a few folks, and we just sort of got chatting at various points and helped me to realize the idea of having an artifact around which we can all gather and we can sort of throw into the world and say, well, it could be something like this. Mm. Is that what we want? And you could say perhaps things like science fiction and Black Mirror and so on are starting to stimulate that kind of conversation as well. Yep. But that's one of the main things that I took away is we need to start creating, you know, getting things out there into the public sphere mm. so that people can start to have those conversations rather than having these abstract thought experiments as we talked about, yep. you know, concretizing it, making it real. Um, my old boss at Twitter has, um, uh, Mike Davidson has a, a policy when people don't know where to go out for dinner no one wants to go first. He'll always say, McDonald's. Because no one wants to go to McDonald's. But at least when something's out there, you go, no, I'm not going to McDonald's. How about this? How yep. about this? And so it starts the conversation going. Right. So the same idea, creating these artifacts, these be they art objects, be they what I would call a provocotype is yes. uh, a word I, I use for those. Others, other people might call them a design fiction. Yeah. Um, to stimulate that conversation. So you've really brought together some of that thinking um, mm. in a way that actually quite excited me. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity from, and for that weekend. Yeah, and I, I think, like you said, the, the Black Mirror and, and those sorts of artifacts are obviously very uh, useful for those conversations because you could mm. quite easily just go, well, we're, we're building this thing. We don't want it to be like that. So, and it involves maybe VR and you can reference, the, you know, some sort of mixed reality Black Mirror episode or something like that. Sure. So, um, so do you think almost we have to go overboard with creating these sorts of uh, publicly available consumables that will help people make uh, better decisions by introducing them to the subject. Yeah, I think we have to start creating quite a lot of these things. I think mm. one of the um, negativities I see, or one, one area that this field of speculative design, I suppose you'd call it, mm. um, is not working very well, is at the moment those artifacts are just sitting in art galleries or in you know, R&D labs somewhere. They're not with the people who they need to be with. Mm. And so we need to get them out of those ivory tower kind of places into the, into the living, breathing world for people to interact with. So there's something that's quite a lot more to be done around that. There is a danger when we create these things that we automatically fall into the patterns of dystopia or utopia. Yep. We already have a bunch of utopian concept videos. I mean, you look at you know, Microsoft's vision of the office in 2025 and it's people writing mm. on glass and it's all that. It tells us nothing about the future other than that Microsoft would like to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, but then we look at Black Mirror and of course that's, you could definitely say that there are too many dystopian angles in that as well. Mm. And, you know, dystopias can be useful. They can be cautionary tales. They're fables. You know, it's, it's, 
it's um i'm not saying there's no value in that kind of thing but i'm more interested in the artifacts that they're not morally neutral i mean no artifact can be morally neutral but mm. that contain moral multitudes that we could see falling into negative patterns of use and positive patterns of use and then that discussion becomes okay how do we ensure it has more of the the positive use cases than the negative yeah so there's a careful line to be drawn there i think we have to recognize there's value in dystopias and utopias but god they're so seductive and so easy to fall into mm. um there's something in that gray area between that feels more productive right you could be trying to produce a utopia and get to a dystopia like there's there's a very compelling argument mm. that uh, politically the dystopias that have been uh, imposed upon various nations over the last century or, or you know, 150 years or something like that have all stemmed from utopia mm -hmm. um, the belief that this is truly the way to a better world can lead to authoritarianism can lead to saying well it has to be like this we have control every aspect and of course then you have totalitarianism you have all sorts of freedoms being taken away you have all sorts of Hmm. Um, essentially genocidal um, uh, perspectives that can come from what appears initially to have been a utopian concept. Yeah. So um, it's tricky and dangerous, I think, to to not recognise that grey area in between. I think that's um, a bit of an antidote to that. Yeah. So you have this um, wealth of design experience and obviously you've worked within these companies that are um, some of the largest technology companies in the world. Do you have an idea that um, some of this work has to bleed into other areas, such as political structures or uh, legislation and, and things like that, um, as well as um, maybe what we talked about so far is predominantly making decisions when you're creating products. Mm. Um, do you think there is a a place for these other types of control or these other types of overarching decisions that we need to make? Uh, I do, yeah. Um, regulation is coming. Right. Right? The, the ship has sailed on that. The tech industry will be regulated, most obviously in the EU. GDPR was, of course, just the first step in that direction. California is now trying to push through a, a privacy directive uh, of its own. Mm -hmm. um, there will be plenty more regulation coming to the internet um, within the next few years. Some people are obviously speculating we may even end up with three sub-internets, the Chinese internet, a European internet, and a, mm. uh, a US internet, and the rest of the world will we'll see where they fit in. But that will mostly come, if that happens, that will be the result of different regulatory regimes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we deserve regulation, frankly. The lack of regulation, uh, or the, the lack of success of our self-regulation mm -hmm. um, is pretty damning, I think. Um, and there is public appetite for it. There's even uh, appetite for it in the tech industry as well. If you ask, mm. um, I can't remember the source, but there was a study that asked people, should we regulate the internet more closely? 82% of the public said yes. 92% of tech industry employees said mm. yes. So wow. I think there's, you know, there's, there's a clear mandate there and it's, it's definitely going to happen. The industry and practitioners should be involved in that process because wherever you sit on the political spectrum, no one wants bad regulation. Bad regulation makes everything worse. Good regulation, now you may find there's a left-right schism there that sure. the left may be more welcoming of regulation than the right. Um, but as I say, bad regulation is the thing that we have to avoid. And with no disrespect intended to legislators, 
they're not always uh, you know as technically literate as technologists i mean why would they be so i think we have almost a moral duty to try and be involved in that conversation to try and help people make laws that Mm. um genuinely uh improve human freedom improve the human condition uh reduce some of the uh stronger abuses of power uh, that are happening within you know technology as a sphere, mm. so I'm actually quite excited for that to happen. I think that's something um, interesting. Politically, beyond just regulation, there is absolutely scope for change as well. Now, I I have to recognise that ethics and politics are intertwined, but they mm. are also separate things. And I think it would be a mistake for anyone who's um, interested in ethics to try and uh, just reduce it to a political political perspective. Ethics is something we should all be interested in, whether you are a libertarian or a socialist or you know a liberal or whatever you are. Ethics should guide the way that we behave and the way that we try to structure our society. Mm-hmm. So there are absolutely political uh, opportunities for change, but I'm wary of trying to sort of espouse a message that is easily dismissed as, oh, it's just political ranting. Um, I don't think that's a success state for ethics. If it starts to become something that one entire political wing, whichever that is, Mm. can disregard, um, then it's going to fail. So although I have obviously my own personal political opinions, Mm. um, it's not that I necessarily hide them, but they're not potentially all that relevant, I think, to the ethical discussion for me. Now, there are people who entwine those much more, and there are people who are asking deep questions about the structure of society, the structure of capitalism. Yep. And that's great. We need those questions asked. And I welcome that those people are having those conversations. And maybe, you know, those are the right answers. Maybe we do need to make fundamental changes in our societies and so on. But I'm a fan of pulling every single lever we have in front of us at the moment. Things have got to a position where, sure, we need people to uh, educate designers on how to avoid putting just dark patterns, you know, interface uh, misleading interfaces in, you know, minor stuff. Yeah. And we need people saying, what's the future of society in a, you know, in a climate change society and an energy scarcity society in 50 years time? Mm. Can we have capitalism, democracy, all these things? How do they exist? How do they function? How do we shape society? And we need people asking all of those questions, right from the micro, uh, right up to the macro and everything mm. in between. Yeah. And you're, would you say you're more on the, here's how you design better products, here's how you make better decisions about you know services and and things that you're creating in the future or, or... i try to be i try to have uh, a good knowledge of what's happening at all ends mm-hmm. at both ends of that that yeah. system um i would you know although i have opinions on you know the far future things and the yeah. deep political stuff i also recognize that those are things that people have been studying for decades and i would rather defer to the people who've been doing that hard, hard work for that time. Say, these are the people we need to be listening to. Let's do that. Rather Mm. than, as I say, coming back to this idea of trying to solve everything ourselves. So we should be listening to political activists. We should be listening to theorists, you know, economic, uh, economists, Mm. people like that. Um, But we all have something to contribute. So I, you know, obviously have opinions about all of those things. In terms of, um, you know, how I affect change and how I, uh, try and work with companies, it's not going to be particularly easy for me to go into a tech company and say, okay, well, the first thing we need to do is disrupt capitalism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have to recognize there are more tangible uh, things that companies are looking for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are plenty of fantastic and motivated people trying to make those bigger changes as well. And best yeah. of luck to them. And I support them in those endeavors. 
um, what if actually surreptitiously through the work with companies you're in fact affecting capitalism dun 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 uh, <laughs> so be it um one of the laws, uh, of, well, the principle in ethics that I talk about in the book is this idea of the law mm. of double effects, the idea mm. that, um, you know, you can sometimes have a, a secondary uh, intention, but that, the, you know, the primary intention is honourable and the secondary effect is sometimes one that you deem acceptable as a, you know, a consequence right. of the first. Yeah. Um, Bluntly, yes, I do think there are questions mm. to be asked about the structure of capitalism and whether it forces un- forces us into ethical compromise. Yeah. Um, and but I'm not I'm not going to go out there and foment revolution. I mean, I'm mm. not equipped to do that. If I help people question their role within those systems and understand mm. how they can try and live the kind of life they want and that they think is beneficial to society, then again, that's really where. I, I want to focus. Yeah. Um, again, this is part of this. I don't want to. I don't want ethics to be something. So, oh, you screaming leftist, right? You know, you're just saying this because you have an axe to grind. I do yeah. think there are questions to be asked, but um, as I say, it, it, it mm. shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a polarizing thing to explore. Yeah. What are the implications of uh, technology on society, technology on capitalism, etc.? Yeah, these I'm, should expand beyond those, those wings. I mean, that was definitely a pithy comment from me, mm. so I apologise for that. No, no, it's okay. Um, I, do you think there's any, uh, I mean, to press you, would there be any kind of quick wins or things that are, are so blaringly obvious that we could do? Or Sure. The Probably the easiest point of leverage is um, in the design critique process. So designers will, you know, for those of you who aren't, listeners who aren't, uh, you know, don't have a design background, you'll have a design critique or crit process mm. whereby designers share work in progress and you rip it to shreds and you say well did you consider this did you consider that and so on that's a great point of, of leverage for um for ethics conversations because frankly a lot of those questions are already ethical mm. well who's this for and what's it going to mean for them and what's going to happen next so yeah. um there are techniques we can introduce there to try and tease out some of the unintended consequences of these decisions one i particularly like is something I came across in a book by Sarah Wachtabetcher and Eric Meyer um, called Design for Real Life. And this is uh, a technique called the designated dissenter. And so you just appoint someone whose job it is to be a constructive antagonist. So they're basically just a bit of a pain in the ass yeah. in the design process. They wear the hat of dissent. Well, what if, I, you know, what if I don't want to provide this information? Or what if I'm going through a messy divorce and you're asking me for sensitive you know, marital status yeah. details? And screw you, I'm not going to do that. And just to challenge the assumptions of the team, to start to broaden perspectives of how might people see what you're doing in a different light? How could it be abused? How could it be abusive? And challenging the team to come up with better decisions, to reach a little bit further into that, to really understand what's what's going on. Yeah. So critique, I think, is a really important um, part of it. And there are plenty of things we need to do as well, probably uh, around definition of who we consider stakeholders. So maybe this is the second thing I'd throw in. Mm. We've had, I think, too narrow a definition of stakeholders in technology. We focused on user-centered design. This has mm-hmm. been something that designers love. But it's not just about users. Of course, there are societies and ecologies and communities and um, you know, even concepts such as you know, the freedom of the press, which have been affected by technology. We need to find ways to bring those into the discussion as well. All these externalities of technologies have fallen on these, these folks and we've ignored them. We haven't been thinking of them systematically through our 
our design work. Mm-hmm. So we need to reframe who we think of as stakeholders. So right at the start of projects, sure, you still ask the questions, who's going to use this? But also, who's not going to use it, but will still be affected by it? Who might be involved? Who do we need to reach out to and actually understand their perspectives better? So there's a job for researchers there to uh, broaden the team's perspectives, but also designers and technologists, I think, have a duty to be a bit broader in their thinking. So that's right at the start of a process. You want to um, have that uh, soul-searching, if you like. Yeah, and I think I uh, read some of that in your book, and Mm. I felt that um, that was instantly um, grapplable. Like, um, you know, it's a concept, oh, yes, we should be thinking more broadly about what, the th- who are who are the people that are touched by this technology even if it's not your core audience your core stakeholders the people that you're actually aiming it towards what are the other uh, externalities I mm. think you, you and how are they going to be affected right if you open you know an MBA textbook mm. there will be a section on stakeholder analysis but a lot of those textbooks will define a stakeholder as someone who can affect the project right and there'll be people in suits or regulators or something like that but of course, there's a second group of stakeholders, which is people who can be affected by the project. And mm. those are the folks we've not looked at. If you look at Airbnb as an example I give in the book, mm. um, great service, well designed for precisely two sets of people. People who have property they want to rent out and people who want to rent property. Terrible service for people who live next door to an Airbnb. Because if you live next door to an Airbnb, you no longer have a neighbor. You have a different neighbor every couple of days. The costs of that system all fall upon the local neighborhood. Rents go up. You know, People won't conform to the norms of, of that neighborhood. They're mm-hmm. not invested in trying to uh, make that neighborhood better. Yeah. And so it's those folks who end up paying for it. Yeah. So it's, it's really trying to refocus on that second group of stakeholders who can be affected by our work. Um, and that's a fairly foundational shift I think that we need to address and and you can really uh, obviously relate it to things which are more obvious because uh, that's some sort of less obvious to to try and work out who are these other people that you're touching um, but if you talk about uber or Airbnb kind of demolishing other people's companies you know um, hotels or, uh, or smaller B&Bs and then obviously normal taxi ranks and and black cabs and things like that are being directly affected um, sure. Or more easily, understandably affected. Um, yeah. In these ways. But we have to be a little bit careful here as well, though, because um, there is a risk that looking and, and and spending time talking and thinking about the ethics of technology can make you appear obstructionist, can make you mm. seem like a luddite wanting to hold back the tide of progress. Yeah. And until a few years ago, tech critics were often labelled as these kind of you know kinkanute characters trying to hold back the inevitable uh, change. And there's plenty to dislike about you know, the hotel industry or the taxi mm-hmm. industry and so on. You know, these weren't necessarily great things for the world in their previous incarnations. I like the framing from Peter Paul Verbeek, who's a you know, philosopher of technology in the Netherlands that many of your listeners, I'm sure, will know. And he says that ethics should accompany technological progress. It doesn't have to directly oppose it. I and mean, Sometimes it will, of course, but sometimes mm. it won't. It just goes alongside a lot of the time. And... So we shouldn't be directly oppositional. We shouldn't say necessarily it's a bad thing that industries are disrupted. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what are the implications of those? Is it going to cause joblessness, social change, externalities to fall upon society's most vulnerable, which often they unfortunately do? So it's about, uh, as Verbeek says, it's about using ethics as a lens to examine the impact of technologies rather than just to try and hold back uh, progress for, for no reason. Yeah. 
And uh, do you think there's a place in displaying that lens somewhere? So if you are going through this process and you have discoveries of some sort of you know, design process, which in includes some of this work and you want to um, talk about it or you're encouraging companies to make it transparent or find a way that we can, you know, talk about it in public mm -hmm. uh, together, uh, discuss, um, you know, we've made this uh, decision, we think it's an ethical decision, you know, etc. Do you think that's a, a way that we can collaborate? Because um, obviously working with organisations is one thing, but then obviously taking it outside into the public um, it's often been difficult to do. Yeah, I think there is a there is a tightrope to be walked there. The idea of designing completely in the open is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, some people who've worked in open source software, for instance, mm. might recognise how hard that can be, and how polarising and polarised rather people's views can be. Um, BBC employees, for instance, will be all too familiar with any change they make. Be a whole host of people saying, "Well, it wasn't broken. Why have you fixed it?" Mm -hmm. um, and so that that gets difficult. There are ways, however, I think, to engage the public in a more controllable way for the technologist. Mm. I'm skeptical of the idea that we can design well without that. Right. Um, there is a big risk that we start turning what should be democratic decisions into technocratic decisions that rest just with enlightened technologists who happen to know the coding languages or yeah. you know whatever it is. And that doesn't feel right for society and for human flourishing. But of course, that has to be a manageable process. I'm often inspired by the idea of co-design here, which um, has its roots in... Uh, well, I don't know exactly where it's mm -hmm. rooted, but I, I sort of associate it with a lot of Scandinavian design practice, the idea of... Um, bringing representatives into the design studio and actually collaborating with them, handing them, um, you know, modeling clay or handing them, uh, you know, felt markers so they can actually join in that product discovery and, and design process. I think the old approaches we've had within design of creating something and then just running it through a couple of rounds of testing at the end to see whether it's usable that's not going to address the foundational issues about ethics. Mm -hmm. That's not going to uncover those externalities or the potential harms that technologies can do. And frankly, a lot of the time, they're positioned too late in the process for any kind of real change to happen. So there does need to be a more fundamental engagement, I think, with the public. And that might be, um, you know, beta communities, beta testers, you know, people like that. But also um, taking the time to understand and to listen to, I think, people who are often harmed by technology. And because of the way that technology and society are interwoven, unfortunately, a lot of the harms of technology fall upon society's most vulnerable people. And so I think we have a duty to understand those people and to ally with them and to listen to them, something the industry has spectacularly failed to do, to understand where these harms might be multiplied by the things that we're building and to try to take mitigating action right at the start, uh, rather than shipping something and then realizing, ah, we've screwed up, mm. right, hit the undo button and try again, which has been our, our, our approach far too often. Yeah. So there are, I think, manageable ways to do that by talking to these representatives. I mean, there are pressure groups, there are campaigners, there are, you know, uh, industry figures or well, you know, well-known figures within a lot of these communities. Mm. And we, it's absolutely right that we should be reaching out to those folks. And I hope that... Uh, we do a lot more of that in the coming years. Yep. Um, awesome. We're getting towards the end. 
Um, the question I always ask at the end is um, what things are you scared about with this technology? Um, we were talking usually about AI in the podcast, but mm. kind of maybe the world of technology um, production and, and things in the future. And what else excites you? The thing that scares me is um, is actually, I think, the, the thing that scares or should scare humanity the most, which is climate change. There is a far larger intersection between the tech industry and climate change than technologists claim or like to believe. We're living now in an increasingly hybridized world of physical and digital coming together. If you just ask Volkswagen, um, you know, what happened with their emission scandal, that was a software hack. There are, you know, however many tons of CO2 now in the atmosphere because of those emissions were cheated thanks to a software engineer who decided to do that. And I have a huge amount of respect for the emotional resilience of people working in the field of climate change because oh, you know the news there is not good uh let's put it that way you know the dystopias are real mm-hmm. there for sure mm-hmm. and unless we take drastic action pretty damn soon then we will be seeing essentially some kind of human die off at some point in the in the next 10 maybe not 10 but you know 20 to 50 years yep. to 100 years and that terrifies me And I think as technologists, it behooves us to consider our roles within that and to try to take that drastic action, because sadly it's not being taken um, Mm. in anything like the scale that it should be. Uh, So that's my um, extraordinarily depressing Mm. fear. Um, What excites me is the hope for more radical change to be facilitated by technology. Having said what I said about not wanting to get too sort of nakedly political because it could mar um, uh, you know, this idea of trying to make ethics a concern for everyone. Yep. It's clear that we do need to make some big changes in society. Um, and it's clear that our current trajectory is unsustainable for all sorts of reasons. But I'm excited by the prospect of technologies freeing people from the yoke of um, what David Graeber would call a bullshit job, freeing people from work that doesn't really advance society in any kind of way and to free us to focus on these issues that truly matter like how do we combat climate change how do we structure society in that world of scarcity how do we overcome the political and ethical challenges Mm. that that will create how do we transition safely between today's society and whatever society is more sustainable in future those are huge questions and while we are you know, while a large portion of society is working on stuff that does not matter, we will be unable to address those questions properly. Yeah. So I'm excited by the prospect of controlled and well-distributed um, wealth from automation helping to free humanity up to tackle some of those bigger challenges. Mm-hmm. Got a huge amount of work to do before that happens. But if it does, I think that's the only way we're going to tackle those. So I, I choose to be optimistic about the way that could refocus humanity to ensure our our flourishing and and frankly even survival over the coming decades. Well, let's strive for that future. Yes, indeed, let's hope for it. Let's do it. Um, So thank you very much for your time. Um, If people want to follow you, get in touch with you, buy your book, that sort of thing, how can they do that? Sure, so I'm on Twitter, uh, of course. Um, My handle there is at Kenneth, which is at C-E-N-N-Y-D-D. And I'm extremely, extremely easy to find uh, because my name is spelled so unusually. Uh, my book, Future Ethics, you can find out more of that 
uh, about that at future-ethics.com. Sweet. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.